Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Robert McNeil. He is an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Texas, and he's been on our show before. Bob, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. This is the first time I've ever been invited back for something. So this, <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Well, kind of teasing about that. You know, we're going to have a great conversation, and I thoroughly enjoyed our last one. And I hope the listeners are ready for a little bit of a different adventure. Yes, it's good. I think when we had our last conversation, I you know started thinking more about um, the benefits of meditation and you had kind of brought up that and also some hypnosis type techniques. So I thought we could discuss that. I mean, maybe my first question for you is what is the benefit of meditation? Maybe we could start with that. Oh, gosh. You know, and I think there are so many benefits. And I'm going to give you a couple studies with some links that sort of give us some physiology details. But for me, you know, my story was it was a couple of years ago and I started noticing cardiac activity in myself. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Okay, let's put the EKG patches on me and see what's going on. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm having PVCs. And I was in my kind of mid to late 40s, and it wasn't a great feeling and ended up having a cardiac workup. And I had a bunch of things going on at the time. Stress was high. Sleep was low. I was having kind of relationship challenges with my marriage and a whole host of factors came together. And my physician said, yeah, this kind of thing certainly happens. And my vessels were clear with my uh, calcium score scan that they did. My EKG when I wasn't stressed was just fine. So I looked at it and said to myself, man, I got to do something about this. And I had, you know, I have a background in integrative medicine from University of Arizona School of Medicine. And so I knew a lot of the details. I knew, you know, have you ever heard of something called broken heart syndrome, Grant? No, I haven't. It's kind of an unusual thing. We learned about it in the fellowship with an integrative cardiologist. And basically, it's a condition where the vessels are clear. So there's no coronary artery disease, but people were having these heart attacks. And it actually has a Japanese name that I'm going to totally mess up. It's Takatsubu cardiomyopathy. And it's basically a Japanese term for like a, a lobster play pot or something. The heart actually malshapes and it malshapes from catecholamine release from stress. And it usually affects older people. And it usually has a little bit more of a predilection towards females. But so anyways, I had all this kind of going on, not that I had that, but I knew there was kind of a connection between the mind and the body. We all know that. 
And, you know, I just said, I got to do something. I got to find something that's going to work for me. And, you know, I love to learn. I love to improve. As you and I talked about it, you know, I'm one of the least patient people you'll ever find. And so I need to have something that is going to be workable. You know, it's got to be easy and I'm open to ideas and I'm open to change. And one of the best pieces of advice I heard on a podcast, I forget which one it was. I think it was actually the physician that I mentioned on my prior podcast, Peter Atia, just kind of mentioned something, you know, hold on to something, you know, hold on to your beliefs, but don't hold on too tightly. You got to be open to other things. And I think for practitioners who are listening to this, hey, if you're a resident, Resident life is super stressful, you know, not a whole lot of sleep. You're under a lot of stress in a variety of different ways, and you need a tool in your toolbox to chill out. Once you're in practice, same in all facets of what we do is just super duper stressful. So I needed it. And I ended up, you know, we all have, we all bring different thoughts when it comes to meditation or some sort of relaxation thing. But there's so much clear evidence right now on what it does. One of the links I'll give you is actually a American Heart Association. I think it was in 2017, kind of came up with a statement on meditation and mindfulness practices as it relates to cardiac disease. And it was really pretty interesting. You know, they did certainly say there's some evidence there. There needs to be further investigation, of course. But it was sort of interesting to see that. And and it's almost in some of the studies they looked at, they almost had a, a certain element of disbelief of some of the results that it was happening, especially for interventions while people are actually having a cardiac event. So, you know, we know mind-body is connected and that can help us and hurt us. In my mind, some of the benefits are kind of to make your mind more clear, give you focus, de-stress, like you're saying, just all that kind of emotional chemical buildup that you can have in your body. You know, I've suffered with chronic back pain. So dealing with pain and stuff like that, I think meditation can get you through that. And then I think just improving your attitude in general with your life, especially if you're kind of doing gratitude type meditation, I think can, you know, make you more happier, so to speak, to some extent. Well, and there's a lot of great evidence for that, you know, journaling and specifically gratitude journaling can have such an impact. I know when I was kind of referencing that time in my life where stress was way too high, that's how I started out each day was what am I grateful for today? And, you know, once again, here we are, we're a couple of our own max facial surgeons, we're talking about gratitude, we're talking about meditation, perhaps we should be on a mountain retreat somewhere, you know, it gets kind of woo woo. But at the same time, this is the low hanging fruit. And I want to be optimized. I want to be the best version of myself. I want to decrease my stress. I want to manage my patients to the best way that I can. You know, there was actually in 2021 in JOMS, there was a a study, and I'll I'll give you the link to this as well. It was titled The Effective Heartfulness Meditation on Anxiety and Perceived Pain in Patients Undergoing Impacted Third Molar Surgery. 
So it was basically a meditation intervention for patients that were having wisdom teeth removed under IV sedation. And they looked at a bunch of different parameters. And it was an interesting study. A couple of challenges with the design of the study as far as there was some self-selection going on. But it really did show a positive impact, relaxation of the autonomic nervous system. You know, looking at the parameters like heart rate, respiratory rate, you know, blood pressure and how they perceive pain and reduction of the amount of pain afterwards. And so, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road for us as far as patient intervention. And there's always this talk of, you know, and this is a quote from the paper, dental anxiety can be managed by pharmacological non-pharmacological or a combination of both. And so in our residency training, you know, we're learning all kinds of pharmacology. And as you and I talked about, you know, right now our anesthesia models under a little bit of uh, challenge, if you will. And boy, having some non-pharmacological management techniques can be fascinating. And quite frankly, it's just, it's better patient care. Having the ability to modify what you do in a non-pharmacological way, and that's what the American Heart Association and then this study kind of talked about and said, hey, you know, there's no risks with doing a lot of these communication interventions. You know, it's not like a drug that we have certain side effects from. So the benefits can be great and the risks can certainly be low. And, you know, it is tough. What we're doing right now, I'm telling you, and I tell this to the residents when I lecture them, practice is tougher now than it was 10 years ago for a variety of factors. And specifically, if we just look at the sympathetic discharge of our patients sitting in the chair is substantially different. People don't have the coping skills for a variety of different reasons. We have various drug interventions that they're utilizing. You know, I don't know if people who use drugs such as marijuana started out with a low pain tolerance or develop that through their cannabinoid receptors being hit, but it's tougher. And so you need to have different tools in your toolbox to manage that. How long have you been in practice for, Grant? 10 years now. And do you think it's gotten any different this last year versus when you first started? Yeah, I think, I mean, overall, (laughs) if you're just talking about the patients, I think they're much more anxious, you know, since COVID, I think. And it's particularly where I live in Denver, you know, there's very, very high usage of marijuana. I mean, almost every teenager, it seems like, is, is already using it to sleep, to relax. And, you know, I think just in general, even without COVID, we see a lot more young people being diagnosed with depression and treated with it with different medications. And there's all manner of side effects, which just didn't exist, you know, 10 to 20 years ago. So do you modify your anesthesia technique at all when you know someone has a positive history of marijuana? Yeah, I mean... I think I still titrate it like I do for everyone, but I pretty much know that they're going to require double to triple the amount of, of medication, which is just the way it is. In myself, that's where I'll really kind of crank up the verbal sedation. And, you know, they're used to being high. 
the drugs we give them are, are going to make them high. And to your point, sometimes you've got to give just higher doses and go deeper. I think there's times with the right patient, you can kind of talk to them and encourage them how, oh, this probably feels pretty good, doesn't it? And kind of take them along that ride and make a decision. Can you stay light by doing something IV sedation wise, or, or do you, you know, need something like ketamine to, to help out? That's a good point. You know, my next question for you is how we can learn meditation. Like, what are your recommendations for someone who's totally naive to meditation and wants to learn it? Where where would you start with that person? So I would start with an app like Headspace or Calm. No financial interest in either. I wish I did. I thought I would be the worst practitioner of meditation ever. I'm like, there is no way I could do this because I thought you just had to sit there and be still. And once again, if people are listening to this, good on them. Some people are kind of against it. They're like, ah, I'm not going to do that. Well, you're you're missing the low-hanging fruit and you're missing something. When I do it during the day, I may do it at noon for 15 minutes. Man, I feel like I've had about a two-hour nap. It's functional. It works. Headspace, I love, and it's basically it's it's almost like a little bit of a hypnotic experience. Basically, is where you're going with it. But I think it's important. I think it's important for all age ranges to do that. Have you ever done any like meditation classes with in person with somebody or through YouTube or something? You know, so I think in my integrated medicine fellowship, we were certainly exposed to that. And there's a, you know, between meditation, guided imagery, you know, hypnosis, really, they all kind of fall into different states. And it's just sort of letting yourself relax. And and there's so many things online as well. I haven't done many YouTube things. I just find Headspace is nice because it's on my phone. You can put in the earbuds and, you know, definitely give it a try. But if you get good at it yourself, then you can help your patients. When we see patients that come in and they're clinchers and they've got myofascial pain, you know, you know that this can work for you and then you're the perfect person to talk to them about it. And it allows us to be better doctors, you know, to come to an oral surgeon and you're getting your wisdom teeth out as a teenager. Well, I also have myofascial pain. Yeah. School's super stressful. Yes. Social media and friends life is really stressful. Well, you know, let's talk. What do you do to relax yourself? We're going to be able to give you some IV sedation that's going to help. But if you come in to the office and you've got a couple modalities, simple as breathing exercises, for instance, or meditation, then just get yourself in a better space. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I too, I was going to piggyback on what you were saying, you know, have gotten most of my meditation from those two apps, I've used both Calm and Headspace and really enjoy both of them. I use meditation a lot for sleep, falling back to sleep, you know, calming down during the day, stuff like that. And I think those apps are great. Um, I've also done like a lot of YouTube videos with, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Deepak Chopra. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's like a great meditation guru and has lots of good recommendations for for different meditations. And if you listen to someone like Deepak or with integrative medicine, Dr. Andy Weil, you know, or in Headspace with the main guy, Andy, the voice is very relaxing. And I know with our prior talk, 
you know, it's not the word so much as how you say it. And when you're interacting with patients or when you're me as a state board member, if I'm interacting with a legislator, it's not just the words, it's everything else. And that whole nonverbal, you know, it's a high percent, but it's your pace, your tone. When you and I talked about hypnotic techniques previously, in my partner in practice, she's like, don't go on there and talk about hypnosis. <laughs> and I actually, I don't like the word and the term hypnosis just because it's got, you know, connotations with it. And once again, if our drugs didn't become so good and it was nitrous oxide and ether that really kind of shut down the hypnotic intervention. But it's just really effective communication. And it's even, you know, I listen to podcasts. I usually listen like 1.2 or 1.3, sometimes 1.5 speed playback. And if people are listening to this on an elevated speed, I'd say, slow it down just a little bit as we kind of talk through things like this to get a sense and work on your tone and pacing. You know, when I did the previous podcast with you, I ended up buying a microphone and my partner and I have been trying to do this YouTube channel for the longest time. And I'm like, okay, well, I bought this microphone to do this OMS podcast. So we got a microphone, let's just make it happen. And we really learned a bunch of things doing this between two teeth thing where you're recording yourself and you're watching yourself. And there's a whole lot of information that comes along with that. You know, just like if you ever videotape yourself role playing, you know, it's tough to see. It really is. And it makes you really pretty mindful of things. When I teach dental students about communication, I'm like, look, here's the deal. This is the most important lecture you're going to have all at dental school. And then I say it kind of jokingly, but I'm like, listen, the way you communicate is going to affect the income, your relationships, state board action, malpractice elements. You know, the vast majority of times are all communication challenges. It's super duper tough. You know, Warren Buffett's been known to say, hey, if you're going to work on something, if you're going to spend money on something, work on communication. That's a good point. You know, you bring up the good issue or point of there's one thing to meditate, you know, in your own mind and calm yourself and use all the benefits of meditation for yourself. And then there's a whole separate thing where you're using meditation techniques, you know, to help someone else. Like, for example, when you are the surgeon helping a patient, you know, maybe before some injections or an IV, or maybe even teaching them you know, to use it themselves for post-op pain, things like that. But those are good things you bring up, different techniques to kind of practice yourself and pace your voice and maybe record yourself and things like that. Right. And as I said, you know, our last podcast, knowing what I know now through some of the various things that I've done, it changes how I do everything. And especially if I'm trying to calm someone down, you know, that whole tone and pacing. So when I walk into a room, I think we talked about this, I used to be real peppy and kind of high volume and all this kind of stuff. And now, no, I'm walking in and, you know, we do our timeout and it's like, you know, let's do a safety check here. Can you tell me in your own words what you think we're doing for you today? And, you know, as I'm getting ready to do an IV placement, I have a certain way I'm talking and I'm very slow, relaxed tone and try to say the same thing all the time. So cognitively, I'm not overloaded, but it makes an impact. And I think so many of us, it's pretty easy to forget all of that. 
Yep. I was going to ask, do you have a specific meditation? I guess you could also call it hypnosis, but some type of technique you use on the extremely anxious patient, you know, who maybe we're not, nobody in the office is sure if they can even tolerate a local anesthetic and getting through a shots or an IV. Do you have something you do with those patients? So we have a YouTube audio called Marconi Weightless that okay. there's some data. I'm not sure how great the data is. We actually found that it works really pretty nice and it actually relaxes me. And I think they have like an eight or nine hour YouTube reel of this thing and it's just certain tones. So that can help. But I'll also walk in the room and I'll go as far away from the patient as I can at the back wall and just sort of talk to them and say, well, let's talk about some ways to make you feel comfortable here. And, you know, obviously with the patient you kind of talked about, sometimes we intervene and give them Halcyon or, you know, PO Valium before they see me. When I walk in a room, you know, that's not a great patient to treat that same day. That's a patient where, okay, my staff have said this patient is super crazy anxious. I walk in, I sit down, I get as far away physically from them as I can. So I'm not in their face. And I say, let's talk about how to make you comfortable in some of the options that I have available. I said, some of that is going to be some medication. We may give you a pill to take before you see me next time to sort of pre-relax you. We're going to give you a breathing exercise sheet here as well that we found has worked very well for patients that are fairly anxious or don't want to see us. So using magic phrases like we found this to be very, very helpful for other people. So we kind of start off with that, talk about some other pharmacological management. You know, we're going to talk about IV sedation. And what I'll often do with a patient like that, my consults are usually not in the surgery room. And then once I'm done talking to them, I'll say, now, if it'd be okay, are you okay if we just walk back and you can see the actual procedure rooms? I don't say surgery to them. It's always a procedure. It's not surgery. You know, never use the word pain. It's always discomfort. But I'm like, why don't we come on back here and just kind of, why don't you have a seat here? And would that be okay with you if you have a seat? And so it's desensitizing them, obviously. If they're really freaked out about an IV during the consult, I'll actually say, well, is it okay if I just take a look at your arm today? I'm not going to do anything other than just take a look and I may just kind of touch your arm. Would that be okay? And so they get their arm out and they're getting used to my voice. They're getting used to me looking at their arm. Gives me a chance to also look at IV access to say, okay, is this going to be a challenge or a little bit easy? I know we talked last time when I actually go to start IVs, you know, I'm doing some sort of hypnotic talk and relaxation talk. I'm using a rubbing alcohol and a lot of it for evaporative cooling effect. And I tell them, I just say, hey, it's going to feel real cold and cool and tingly here. I'm doing that. And then I'm kind of, I put the rubbing alcohol on and then I'm waving it away and it's evaporating. And I said, does that feel kind of cold and tingly there? And it's amazing. Something even just like that. People aren't moving their arms around like they used to, but I can't just say, okay, it's going to feel cold here. Yeah. I feel cold. I feel cold. Yep. Feel cold. And, you know, my first couple of years of practice, I think that's probably how I was, you know, I was just set on, oh, I've got something to do and I got to get it done. And I talked to you about how impatient I was. 
and and am impatient. So finding some nuance sort of approaches can be really pretty neat. Oh, for sure. You know, I was going to bring up, I had a root canal a few months ago and the endodontist, really great doctor, Dr. Tran. He like before my injection and I, and I was totally calm, you know, I, I don't have any problems with shots, but he did this whole routine with me, which he said he does with every single patient. You know, he kind of turns the lights down and says, all right, now we're going to, you know, breathe with me and four counts in, you know, holds whatever six counts out and he did like a visualization thing where you're like kind of on an island and you hear the beach and things and and, you know and then after he's kind of got you really sedated mentally he you know does the injection super slow yeah and i mean it was incredible i hardly felt anything and i thought wow that's amazing that he does this and takes the time to do that with every single patient it just blew me away Right. And that is awesome. And it, and it makes you a great practitioner. And I am too impatient and lazy to do that. <laughs> Same. And, you know, if we lose the ability to do any IV sedation, then I'm going to do that right away. And I have the technique to do it. But so I look at it and say, what's the minimal amount of effort I can do to get the most bang for my buck and still use IV sedation most of the time, but give me the ability not to use a whole lot of IV sedation and be able to talk people through things it really is pretty profound. And this is just good communication, finding what works, distracting the patient at appropriate times, talking to them about, okay, you're going to feel a little bit of pressure here. You may even, you may hear a little sound here. Sometimes this sound can bother, but you're guiding the patient through the experience, which is, which is pretty neat. Yeah. That's awesome. Terrific. Any other things you would recommend for providers who want to use meditation in their office? Other than just finding some things and try to get good at it yourself. And that's really a positive. That's something that's going to going to help you work on your communication skills, tape yourself, you know, videotape yourself realistically is terrific. For this Harvard training to teach in medicine course I'm doing, we had to do a video clip of ourselves as an instructor and we had to submit it and then we'd get evaluated and graded by our fellow classmates. And it was really interesting seeing these different people. And some of them were super duper smart and they're trying to communicate, but they just were some of the smartest people probably in this world and were some of the worst communicators. And that's tricky. And when you listen to these people doing hypnosis like Headspace, that's how to relax people with how they talk. And so you can learn, you can certainly learn by that. Totally. That's awesome. Excellent. I think this is all going to be valuable for those who are getting interested in meditation. Are you okay if people kind of reach out to you if they have questions about this? Yeah. Yeah, that and I have had some people reach out to me after the last podcast we did. And I think from my perspective, you know, I want to pivot just to touch if we can to, you know, you've got a lot of residents, I think, listening to this program, a lot of young docs. 
And there's one of the links that I'll give you that is from the American College of Surgeons and gives some advice. It's a bulletin for advice for new docs. And a lot of this plays into the stress component and meditation, just optimizing yourself. You know, one of their first point was give your family the best, give work the rest. And I, I think it's pretty easy for us to lose sight of that, especially as you come out of training. You've been working really, really hard and you're ready to focus. And obviously, what we do is important. Our profession is important. You know, I'm an A-bombs examiner, so I take that very seriously. But at the same time, family life's got to be the most important thing. And I've missed that mark on several occasions. You know, everyone's out to get us. This article goes on and says, hey, people are going to come out. There's financial traps galore. People are going to want you to invest in all sorts of things. And you feel as though you're behind the eight ball because you've been in school for so darn long. Also talks about failure, you know, and just when you fail, ask for help from others and embrace your failure. What you and I were talking about earlier, Grant, you know, I'm a big believer that the universe gives you what you need. And I have learned an awful lot from failure. But if you don't sit down and say, why did this happen? What am I learning from this? What do I need to do something different? And, you know, talk to people about it. That's why I love that you're doing this program to start various, all kinds of different conversations within our specialty. And people can talk about screwing up. You know, my screw up was early part of my career. I took too much emphasis on my career. And was just too, you know, too career focused and business focused. And that got me off the ball and there were repercussions with that. Yeah. I like that you said the universe gives you what you need, not what you want, you know, because I feel like that's a whole different thing. Oftentimes we're getting all these trials and different things because probably quote unquote, the universe is trying to teach us something, but we're kind of fighting against it because we don't like the way we're being taught. But I think if you can kind of accept the conflict and the trial that's going on and try to learn from it and grow from it, it's just, you're going to get so much more out of it than if you were to kind of have a bad attitude, you know, and say, my life sucks. Woe is me, that type of a thing. You are not wrong in two of the things that I really, I just finished my MBA with this healthcare management leadership program. And two of the things that I really took out of the program was expectation management. And it applies in all situations, applies in clinical situations. If you don't manage, you know, if there's a mismatch between expectations set and what actually happens, you got a problem. That's where we see issues at the state board level. That's where you see relational issues. Everything comes down to that. The second one is amygdala hijacking. And I can't remember if we talked about that on the first podcast. And it's a really, uh, it's when someone loses their mind and they just kind of, a situation happens and they have a trigger and it's all emotionally based. Unfortunately, here in Texas, less than a week ago, we actually had a patient that sounds like they got amygdala hijacked and actually shot and killed two dentists in the office. Terrible, terrible, terrible situation. And I'll give you this clip. There's this great whiteboard video that we came across in the MBA class that really changed my take and gave it a label to say, this is what's going on. And so if you feel yourself kind of 
getting pent up or you see someone else, you know, some communication skills to kind of deal with that. And, you know, obviously as doctors, we see patients and other people kind of going through those situations. So that can be pretty important skill set to have. Oh, for sure. And then I was also going to ask you, you know, because you that first podcast we have, you mentioned hypnosis. I mean, we're using that synonymously with meditation or do you have some type of actual hypnosis practice that you do? So I don't have an actual hypnotic practice because remember, we're not allowed to use the the term hypnosis. Remember, we had that. That's right. (laughs) We call it something else. We just call it relaxation, but it changes how I do everything. You know, with one of my trainings, I think I mentioned the the physician anesthesiologist who worked with NIH that trained me through the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis said, just change everything you do, you know, blend it into everything, how you talk, just slow things down. And as I said, I will have very specific things I say to a patient, you know, I have this 90-year-old lady and we're getting ready to take a tooth out and I can see she's gripping the hand, the armrests, I'm, I'll say something like, if you'd like to feel a little more comfortable, I want you just to focus on your exhale. Just try to go ahead and slow things down as you breathe out through your nose, maybe to a count of six or seven seconds and just feel yourself getting more relaxed. You can even let your shoulders relax just a little bit more and just notice yourself feel more comfortable. So that's the type of technique. It's more of a naturalistic technique. Hypnosis itself, there's lots of videos on YouTube, which is not a great place to learn. I really would push people to go to one of these American Society of Clinical Hypnosis four-day courses to learn some things. But, you know, there's a traditional induction and a deepening, all that stuff. And realistically, for my modality of practice, I don't do that really at all. But having techniques to kind of relax people. And the good thing about hypnosis, my oldest guy, David, is thinking dentistry and potentially OMS. And he's super interested in some of the studies. He's actually trying to get in with someone through NIH or NIDCR to look at some of the things we can measure now with hypnotic techniques. You know, now we've got functional MRIs, all sorts of physiological things that we can measure. And so they're coming up with some pretty interesting studies on that, especially for burn patients. There was a terrific article talking about a lot of those physiological measures, because obviously we all know burn patients just have such issues with pain and dressing changes and all that sort of thing. So there's some great non-pharmacological modalities out there. And the American Burn Association actually has guidelines that kind of push non-pharmacological treatments as very high evidence of things that can work for pain control and all that. And I guess my last push here, Grant, would be for people to never stop learning. You know, you're coming out of residency, you're like, oh, and I love, love, love learning. I loved doing the MBA taught me a, a different language that I was never exposed to. I love doing the English. That's what really introduced me into a lot of the topics that we're talking about today. And I think it really made me a better doctor and helped me enjoy things. The last thing that I want to push, there's a, a book that I'm reading now. I'm doing a, speaking of doing things differently, I'm doing a Harvard Kennedy School fellowship and actually taking a month off of practice 
and going to Boston to do something completely different. It's a sort of a public policy management leadership program. I think I'm going to be the only healthcare practitioner. Most of these people are from Department of Defense, Department of Energy. It's part of their leadership training thing, but it's a bunch of different people. And one of the professors has this book called Strength to Strength. And he's one of our professors, Arthur Brooks. And he just has a list of seven things to kind of happiness as you get older. And for a lot of us practitioners, I think this can be helpful. Smoking, that's obviously a big issue. Alcohol, many of us do a little more of that than we probably should. There's probably no safe level of alcohol. Body weight, maintaining that. Movement, kind of getting that daily walking down. But number five was practicing coping mechanisms. And that's a lot of what we talked about today of just what are you going to do? You know, meditation, breathing exercise, that's the low hanging fruit for us as practitioners. Number six was keep learning, engaging, doing additional things. And I think for people listening to this, you know, open your mind to a whole lot of different things. And then the last one was just cultivate relationships. And that's not just with your significant other, but super important to have colleagues and to have people outside of the profession. And once again, grant to you to to have this kind of venue with the podcast, to let people interact is such an important thing. And a lot of times, I think people just like hearing that what we do is tough. You know, it really, really is. And there's so many blessings to it. I would do this again in a minute. That's why I'm encouraging my oldest guy, David, to do this as well. And I know, I think your brother's at Case right now. Yeah. Is that right, Grant? Yeah. So we're blessed to do what we do. Let's make it the best we can on us, on our patients. And that that sums up, I think, what we're talking about today. Totally agree. Yeah, I think you bring up the good point that you know, kind of the reason or the purpose behind all these meditation techniques and using them with our patients is is more to kind of connect and slow down and, and find that kind of deeper, richer connection or purpose there in life. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the technology today and, and phones and all the stuff just disconnects all of us. And we're all kind of especially in the office i think the surgeon has that temptation to be very kind of cut off and disconnected and sterile and just kind of like here's what we're doing take it or leave it you know you need to sit still and be quiet or else you know we got to move on and it's such a great practice builder to be able to help your patients and maybe take a minute you know to meditate with them or you know play what you're talking about like play a youtube meditation thing for them to listen to maybe just let them sit in their own room for a little bit and, and then check on them how you doing and that type of a thing and just be, be tremendous being able to communicate empathy yes is a big deal and once again everything we are talking about makes you more connected to patients to everyone you come across And as I say, get away from just the words, practice on all the other stuff, the hide it, the chair. You know, when I say, when I have patients that are super anxious, I'm not standing over them at all. I'm really, and I've got pretty good sized rooms. I'm sitting as far away from them with my back against the wall until they get more comfortable. And then I can slowly kind of move in. I'm using a lower tone of voice. Yeah. to have. And quite frankly, it makes it more enjoyable. 
everyone is terrified to come and see us as an OMS. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And getting a sense of their sympathetic discharge, and you can tell that by their forehead, their shoulders, their hands. You know what's going on, and then you can see them relax as you communicate with them. And it doesn't take long. I'm not having 30-minute consultations. Mine are very, very quick and efficient. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, something super easy, low risk, just can help you in your own life and your practice. It's totally worth doing. I am going to submit that. I think you should make your own online meditation courses for surgeons. I think that'd be a tremendous resource. I don't know. I haven't looked into that. Are there doctors, teaching doctors? Um, So there is, and that's sort of what that American Society of Clinical Hypnosis is. And it's physicians, dentists, psychologists, social workers. It's really a pretty good thing. Once COVID is out, and I think they're getting back to in session, I would push people to do it and it gets you to be a better communicator. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time today. That's been really helpful. We'll post this and then some show notes with some links to some of the stuff you're talking about. But yeah, I really appreciate it. I appreciate it so much. I really do. Awesome. Thanks so much, Bob. All right. Take care, Grant. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.